0: All right. Hey, good to see all of you and to worship together. And um, sitting in the front, I could hear you sing. And um, you guys sound great. And um, so it's nice to worship together in this way. Um, Pastor Sam did mention that there's a barbecue next week. And it'll support our Mississippi team. And we have several of our um, men here at our church that are smoking the meat. Like, and they're, they're going to bring it and donate it. So it's going to be very good. And, um, so make sure you make room for that. And then if you are a, you know, a smoker, a meat smoker, and you want to help smoke meat, um, come and, uh, let Pastor Paul know, send him an email, say, yeah, I want to do something and, uh, donate, uh, whatever you want to do. But, um, it's going to be great. I know, I think we have three of our, uh, brothers confirmed who are going to, um, cook the meat for us and donate it. So it's going to be a good time next week. And, um. It's, uh, it, we want to welcome Pastor Sam back from his um, sabbatical, and uh, he's uh, back and he looks, you know, he's got a new shirt and looks all good, and um, he's all, you know, so make sure you go and, um, you know, just catch up with him a little bit, and uh, it's nice to worship together. Today we talk about this concept of how we spend our days. You know, um, if you are in school, whether you're a teacher or a student, you are counting how many days till summer started. You were counting how many days now till fall is going to start and school's going to start. You know, you only have now, I was looking on my calendar, 60 days till it's September, right? You only have 60 days left. Um, So you want to make all of them count. You wish they would last 48 hours each. You know, it's like you don't want it to start. Uh, You know, a month ago when you were looking forward to vacation, you couldn't wait. You know, I got two weeks left. I got 10 days left. I got nine days left. Uh, You know, one more day and then I'm on break. And we look at time in that way. It's very important we understand how we spend that time, how we live our lives. Right? Uh, there's a story of a 12-year-old girl. Uh, her name is Lee Rodriguez Espada. And this young girl, Lee, was running in a family um, little 5K marathon. Um, and it was out in Roche- uh, Rochester, New York. And her mom was dropping her off. And her mom was running late. And they see the crowd. They say, okay, that's what they must be running. And so they, the mom pulled in and said, jump out join the race, I'll go park somewhere, I'll find you, don't worry, just hurry up, you don't want to be late. Well, what they didn't realize is that um, where she started running, she just saw the crowd of people, so she jumped and started running, was this was not the family 5K that she thought, it was the half marathon that was happening, and so this young girl, 12-year-old girl, started running, just running with the, you know, the half marathon there, and so she's now running a far, far, you know, far more than she had expected. It's taken a lot longer. Her mom starts panicking. Her mom calls the police department, the authorities. Something happened to my daughter. You know, she should be back here by now. What happened? And they realize she was running in the wrong race. And she finished. She finished almost last place. It was something like, uh, I forgot, 1,900 out of, you know, 1,910 or something like that. So she almost finished last place, but she runs the race. And now it was all over the news for several reasons. Some people are gonna like, oh my gosh, you know, um, you're so dumb, you ran the wrong race. And so they, they, they put that on the news, like, you're tired for no reason. And then some people are like, oh, how inspirational, you know, even though you just ran the race and you did it, and um, everyone has an opinion on it. But she ran the wrong race. She got tired for no reason. Her mom put her at the wrong place. And now I want us to think about that in terms of life. How are we running the race of life? And you know what What most people do is this. They're running late in life. They see a crowd. They're going to run this race. They're just going this way. And then we just say, oh, you better join them because everyone else is going there. You better follow them. Not knowing or thinking about why or where or how we're what we're doing about. We just drop them off. And we say, i got to join the crowd because the crowd is doing this. I should be worried about these things because the crowd is worried about these things. I ought to spend my money in this way because all my peers seem to be spending their money in this way. And we run the race, and a lot of times we are in the wrong race. We are tired for the wrong reasons. And we think it's good because everyone is running, and everyone is running this half marathon, but we're supposed to be somewhere else. Here in this psalm, in Psalm 90, It's written by Moses. It's um, one of the oldest of all the 150 Psalms, 90 and 91. Uh, Moses speaks to us and he talks about how we ought to spend our days, how we ought to number our days. Um, And it comes with a proper understanding first part of who is God and who am I? Um, We are contrasted with God, God is great. We are not great. And he lets us understand that. And by the time we start our scripture reading, he says, so let us now number our days, right? And so because of those truths, we want to live in a wise way. And so we want to do those two parts. We want to look at what does the psalmist here, what does Moses say about God? And then we want to say how should that affect our lives, our days, the race that we are running in, right? First of all, God is our home. The Bible says he's our dwelling place. Look at verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's it's all of us, we go to him. So our home is not a physical address, it's not a city, or it's not a place. We think home of a certain place like that, but really, home is God. For Christians, my ultimate dwelling place, the place I find security is God. Uh, We often have a a sense of nostalgia, or we we connect with our old homes, the home that we grew up at. You know, I remember when we were going up to San Francisco, I grew up in in the Bay Area, and I remember stopping by my old house in Castro Valley, and it was this, like, moment, like, I remember my childhood, and, you know, like, I was there, and I I was, like, I pulled up and made a pit stop, and and then I was going to share with my family, like, look, this is where you're, you know, this is where I grew up, and then I look, and, Everyone's sleeping, so you know I just made a U-turn and just went and just had my moment at the house, like it was me at Castro Valley for a little bit. But really, we think of home as something that we, we have nostalgia, we enjoy it, it it's, but ultimately it's God is our home. God is our security. And it's true for all of us, for all generations. Now, when Moses is writing this, um, at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he is dealing with... Complaints. He's dealing with people that are homesick, saying, I wish we can go back to Egypt. I wish you can go back to slavery. That was secure then. I don't want to be where I am now, because I am without a home. And the whole purpose of the 40 years of wandering is for them to learn that security and home is not Egypt or Canaan or a place, but it's God himself. And so they're complaining to him. They're talking to him. You know, and uh, they're whining about wanting to go back. They're complaining about going to now the promised land. And they're kind of in this limbo. But the whole 40 years, they're realizing God is their home. God is their security. So we think about that. We, we take that truth. God is my security. The second thing we see is that God is eternal and I am not. God is eternal and I am not. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth... For ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he looks at, he compares God to the nature. And he looks at the nature before the mountains were formed. Before we can go to the Grand Canyon and the scientists tell us it took X amount of years for this to happen through the waters running through. Before all of that, you were God. And Moses uses this phrase from everlasting to Everlasting. It's everlasting in the past. It's everlasting in the future. Uh, when there is uh, words that are repeated back to back like this, it's in the, in the Bible, it's used to demonstrate an emphasis. So not as God only just everlasting, but he is everlasting in the past and everlasting in the, pre, in the future. He is there. He is forever. Compared to him, we are very temporal. Our lives on earth are very short. God willing, you are healthy, and you know you have health, and you live to, let's say, even a hundred. A hundred years is nothing compared to that. Um, and this is how we are described. Um, we're described in verse four, for example, as a watch in the night. Uh, the a watch in the night is a, a kind of a soldier's term. They would go and say, "You have the, you know, the first watch. I'll go in and I'll, I'll be lookout for the second watch and the third watch." And in the uh, Jewish culture, there were um, three watches of the night you know and they would watch it in this way in the Roman culture they broke it up in four parts so sundown to midnight midnight to two two to you know and they would break it up in this way but it's saying our lives are so short it's not even like it's a whole night let's compare it to one watch in the night right? he also compares our lives to uh, a dream like grass look at verse 5 you sweep them away with a flood they are like A dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, verse 6, and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. He's talking about how short and temporary our lives are. He wants to make that comparison to God eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. Here's your life. It's like a dream. We have many dreams throughout the evening. A lot of them are so insignificant we don't even remember them. If you're very vivid, you might remember a few. You might remember some things, but we don't even remember them. They're so short. They're temporary. They seem real, but they're not. And That's the point that he's making. Our lives go by so fast. It seems so important when you're there, but man, it goes away so quickly. It's like grass. If you have grass at your house, you know you have to get that thing cut every couple of weeks. And then it grows, and you cut it, and new grass grows. You cut it, and new grass grows. How quickly... We come and we go. So, God is eternal. God is our dwelling place. We learn all these wonderful truths about God. And then now he prays. So, teach us in verse 12 to number our days. Because this is true about God, let that affect how we spend our days. And uh, I want to share with you these three parts of how, three ways of how we ought to spend our days. Number one, we ought to spend our days in purpose. Each day has a purpose. God has given our lives a purpose. Even though it seems so short in the light of God, that God would be in the midst of my life. God would have me be born at this time with these things. There's a purpose. We ought to live each day with purpose. Verse 12 again, and uh, it says this, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's read that out loud together. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. First of all, we need to be taught this because time just goes, and we tend to gravitate to things that bring us the quickest pleasure or is the biggest emergency, and we just gravitate towards those things. Time is wasted. You think about how precious time is. You think about how special our days are. You can't pause it. You can't save it. You can't buy any more time. It is going. July 3rd, 2016, this is it. You will never have this day again. So we have to now live in it in purpose. God says to number our days. Understand that each one is important. Understand that each day I ought to do the things I ought to do for him. You know, uh, people that understand that their days are limited. If you've ever heard speeches of people or have talked to someone who um, has a terminal disease and they say, boy, you know, I know I have this amount of time. They're very very strategic about it, you know, very on point about what they want to accomplish. Now, there are famous talks that are given, you could look them up on YouTube, like Jimmy Valvano, the coach for NC State, when he gives this passionate talk about how to live life as he was dying of cancer at the ESPY awards, and he gives this famous talk. Randy Posh became famous, the professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University, gave his last lecture. And a lot of professors would give their last lecture as they are retiring and the faculty and everyone would join to hear their last lecture. And he was given his last lecture because he was gonna die soon from uh, uh, his disease. And he gave this wonderful talk about how we ought to live life. It becomes a book, The Last Lecture. So when you listen to people like that, you say, boy, that's really inspiring, that's really good because they're so focused, they're so deliberate. But we all have to understand our days are numbered. We have an X amount of days and then, hey, X amount of days in, in high school, X amount of days in college, and X amount of days in my 20s, and then my 30s, and my 40s, and my 50s. We have to understand it goes, and it keeps on going. And so we have to value that. We have to understand how important that is. You know, the, um, there's a book called What to Do Between Birth and Death. Uh, Charles Spisano, the psychotherapist, says in his book, you don't really pay for things with dollars and cents, You pay for them with time. Everything you do costs you some kind of time. And to waste it, to live in foolishness, to run the wrong race and spend all my time, I'm running the race that everyone else is running, and I realize that's not the race God had called me. How important that is to understand, you know, you have 1,440 minutes in a day. How are we going to spend it? We have to spend it in the purpose of God, what God has in store for us, how God wants us to live. Each day is ordained by God. I have to live in this way. You know, Jonathan Edwards in 1735 gave a sermon called The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. And I quote him. He says, upon time, we should set a high value and be exceedingly careful that it be not lost. And we are therefore exhorted to exercise wisdom and circumspection in order that we may redeem it. And hence, it appears that time is exceedingly precious. 1700s. He's talking about time and how true it is for us in such a fast society. Lack of patience, a lack of waiting. We want everything to go, and yet we waste so much time. We have so much technology, and yet we waste so much time. We run the wrong race. The Second thing about our days is it ought to be filled with joy. All of our days should be lived out in joy. And it only comes by having a faith in Christ. Now, we could say, I want to be happy. Um, good news makes me happy. You know, I got a promotion, I made the sale, I got an A, you know, um, this, this, uh, it makes me happy. Isn't that what joy is? Well, it's so much more than that. Joy is the person who knows what is to come. Joy is like the graduate student that gets, you know, into a Ph.D. program. And we know it's going to be difficult. We know there will be sleepless nights of research and writing and, and and doing all that work and trying to now defend their paper, and hopefully, the, but what the joy in the process is, I'm going to graduate. The joy is, is, the, is the mom that finds out that she's pregnant. You say, oh, you know, my body's going to change. It's going to be so tough, and, you know, I'm going to have to raise a child. It's going to cost X amount of money, and this and that. But really, the joy of those nine months is knowing, hey, I'm going to have a baby. And so the joy comes not in the daily things, but joy comes in the final results of things. And here it says this in in the scriptures, right? In verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let's read that out loud together. Verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I mean, really, this this should be our prayer every morning. Maybe we should write it down and get up. Make it our screensaver. Just wake up and say, God, satisfy us in the morning. With your steadfast love. What satisfies us? It's his steadfast love. The things that satisfy us, the experiences and the gifts and the gadgets and the ups of life, will eventually go away. I know we, we sit in our community group, and when we sit together, we often share, how was your week? How was your week? You know, and um, some, are hot, some are, oh, it was great. And some, oh, it was tough. And every week, it's someone's up and someone's down, and we share and we talk and we pray. The longer you live, you're humbled because you know, hey, my week's not going to always be so fun and happy. But what happens in life is, hey, there is sometimes good news, there is bad news, and it's going side by side in our lives. We're traveling on it. But the joy comes in knowing that God causes all these things for the good of those who love him. God has a plan for us, a purpose. God has a plan even in our suffering. So there comes the joy. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Only God's steadfast love can make us rejoice and be glad all of our days. Including the worst of days. The hardest of days. The saddest of days. Even in that God says he is greater than death. He is greater than our disappointments. He is greater than guilt. And he takes that away. We ultimately have joy. And so every day ought to be spent enjoying ourselves. Enjoy. What does that mean? In faith in God, and how important that is. The third thing is, is God gives us success in all of our days, and we have to be very clear on this, right? Um, how, we often define our own success, and we go to God. say, God, um, I wanted to do A, B, C, and D. God, will you make this happen? And if sometimes God lets it happen, we say, hooray, like I, I've been successful. You know, God, you know, I wanted to get this job and I wanted to get paid this amount and I wanted to live in this city. Can you make this happen? And God, if God lets it happen, we, yay, you know, I, I've made it. But we cannot, we have to understand that success is not something we go to God and say, God, here's my recipe for success. Can you fill this? Here's my prescription for success. Can you fill this? No. Success is defined by God. And we have to say, God, teach me the success so I could live it out. We cannot run the wrong race and finish the wrong race and say, wasn't I successful? No, you ran the wrong race. You were at the wrong place. And so we have to now go to God and say, what is success? God defines the success, and we have to now have wisdom to know this is what success is. This is what a successful life looks like. This is what I ought to do in this way. And that's how we approach him. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He prays for the whole people of God that the favor of God would be upon them. The beauty of God is another way to translate the favor of God, that we would now acknowledge the greatness of God, that we would understand God loves me, God is great, God is eternal, God is my dwelling place, and that favor would be upon us, as that favor is upon us, as we are walking in his will, as we are walking according to the way he wants us to, he'll establish the work of our hands. Yes, he will establish the work of our hands. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 127, 1? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So you think about this. Unless the Lord blesses it, he says it's a waste of time. Unless the Lord defines what success is in your life, so that it's not about how much you accumulate, but it's how generous you are. It's not about, hey, how many good friends you had or how popular you were. No, it's how many people you loved. It's not about all the safety that you went through to make sure your life was safe. No, it's talking about obedience and faith at times. And so if we could redefine what success is and not look to the crowd because the crowd is saying that race is what they're running, and in our insecurity we say, I'm just going to join this race Parents, we just throw our kids into that race. Hey, they're all running. You ought to run. We should run this way. But God says, my race is over here. Don't define your success because everyone else is running that race. My race is different. The way you ought to live is different. And so the life of holiness, a life of purity, a life of loving others, a life of faith, a life of prayer, all these things, the world doesn't say, boy, that's successful. The world says, boy, look at you. At this age, you already possess all these things, and you already have all these things you're reckoning this. But God says, no, this is what success looks like. And so we define our success not by what the world says is good, but what he says. Think about this at the finish line. You run run the wrong race, and you get to the finish line, and they say, you're, you're not even in the right place. You're disqualified. You needed to run here. But think about this. You run the right race. And God is there waiting, saying, well, then, good and faithful servant. We have such a short amount of time. The Bible calls the days an opportunity. Paul uses it over and over. It's an opportunity. The days are evil. Hey, make the most of every opportunity. Opportunity. Today is an opportunity. It's not a day just to live. It's not just a day to get dragged by this person and that person and this fad and this trend and that mob and this. No, it's a day. It's an opportunity to live for him. And, you know, scientists have shown that uh, time speeds up as you get older. They experience how we understand time. They say, as you get older, it feels like it's shorter and shorter. And we feel it, but now they've kind of... Uh, You know, just studied it and seen that. And so it's just going to speed up. And a life that is lived. Teenagers, you ought to live your life. Do your best to live for Christ. You ought to do well in school and obey your parents. All that because you're a Christian first. Not because you're being compared to everyone else. Not because you're trying to fit in. But because you're a Christian. Uh, Those of you in your 20s, you ought to live this life. Not just, just the biggest pleasure in my life, just running around, just trying to keep up. No, it it ought to be filled with how can I use this time, this decade of my life for the Lord. Those of us in, in your 30s, you know, we ought to live that life, not just to settle in and how can I become comfortable. No, we ought to live, how can I live and give this life to him? Those of us in our 40s and 50s, we ought to live each decade knowing that, hey, I have only so much left. I can't buy anymore. I can't pause it. I can't go and make it. This is it. It's going by. And we ought to think carefully before we jump in. You know, as Abraham Lincoln had this famous quote, he said, give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the X. We have to just pause and think, am I in the right race? How should I run this race? How should I live? What does God want me to do? What really makes sense in in the light of eternity before we just run and we're just tired, before we're just hitting the tree with a dull axe? Sharpen it and be ready. The gospel message that Jesus Christ, the creator, the sustainer of the world, God from everlasting to everlasting, loves us, gave himself for us on the cross, and says, here is life. Now I tell you how to live. That ought to blow us away, and we ought to say, "I got, I got to feel. This is how I'm going to live." If we are Christians, indeed, there has to be something radical. And so maybe you've been in the wrong race. I want to challenge you. You just got to jump out right now. Don't finish a race you don't belong to. Don't do it till you're 70 in the wrong place and say, "Ah, uh, why did I do all of that? I'm just tired, and I was in the wrong place." But we'll run this race. Say the words that Apostle Paul said. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now in store for me is is this crown. And we look forward to him. Let's live in that way. Amen. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you give us all of our days. You give us our lives, our health, all of our abilities. So we want to obviously live it for you. God, we get so caught up in... Keeping up in joining the wrong race at times, we want to live for you, so help us to do that. Each day, Lord, is an opportunity for us to bring glory to you. So would you keep that in mind? Lord, you are the everlasting God. You are our ultimate dwelling place. So, Lord, before we strive for all those things here on earth, we strive for you. God, teach us that. For our teenagers here, Lord, teach us that. Would you teach them that? As the world is judging and comparing them, are they keeping up? What are they ranked? And what, Lord God, in the midst of all that, Lord, may the reality that they are God's sons and daughters uh, be so real in their lives. I pray for them, and I pray for the rest of the church. Help us not to waste one more day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.